0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit Graceontheashley.org. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter three? Luke this morning beginning in verse 15. plan to, to make it down through verse 20, but I think we may, uh, we may sort of pull out at verse 18, but we'll, we'll read all the way to 20 this morning. Luke writes these words. He says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, flesh, the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. God, your word is powerful. Your word brings change to our lives. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are moved to respond, and that as we study your word, you would draw us to Christ. We pray it in his holy name. Amen. Well, it's great to be back preaching this morning and back into Luke's gospel. It's been two weeks since we've been studying this, and I, I have very high, a very high view of this congregation. I know you remember exactly where we left off three weeks ago. And uh, and it's right at the front of your mind, and so we don't need to really review that because you're you're on you're right there, right? You you've been waiting for three weeks, like the next episode in a uh, you know a Netflix series that gets delayed for three weeks. You've been waiting for the the next uh, installment, right? That's right. Okay, good. Thank you. Christ died for our sin of lying as well, just like the rest of our sins, and it's okay. Um, we are staying. The, the, the gospel of John. We are in Luke 3. We have been, by Luke's pen, walking through the ministry of John the Baptist. And before we did dive into that, I also want to just pause and say, for the last two weeks, you've had guest speakers, and many of you have told me uh, how how much those uh, men and their messages have, have impacted you. And I, I want to tell you, I, whenever you tell me those things, I pass that along to the guests that come. And one of the things I have consistently heard in both Uh, of the two men who preached the last two weeks is how warm and gracious and kind this congregation is and uh, so I want to just tell you that because it makes me proud and I want you to hear that that your love and your grace comes through as you navigate even with with guests who come through and so thank you for for being a congregation like that Uh, so back to Luke and the gospel and John the Baptist. You may recall without us going into a lengthy introduction here that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He, uh, Luke has been sort of introducing us to John all throughout the beginning of this gospel. He's been sort of weaving the story of John and the story of Jesus sort of in and out like a tapestry. He'll, he'll speak to us a little bit about John, and then he'll speak to us a little bit about Jesus. He'll tell us about John's miraculous birth, and then he tells us about Jesus' miraculous birth. And it's as though he's sort of weaving the stories together uh, in order to show us a really stark and distinct contrast that John is a great, great man, the greatest perhaps of the prophets. Jesus said later that John was the greatest man who had ever lived up to that day. And but as great as John is, what Luke wants you to see, and he wants me to see, and he wants everyone to see, is that Jesus is greater. As remarkable as, as, as John the Baptist was, Jesus is more remarkable as impressive as John was, as impactful uh, as John's ministry was, Jesus is the Messiah. He's more impactful, he's more remarkable. And what's about to happen as we make our way through verse 20 of chapter 3 it's as though it's as though luke is is taking the camera of the movie and he's turning it away from Do, from john and he's turning it toward jesus and jesus is going to be the focus throughout the rest of the gospel of luke and so we have here really luke's last thoughts that he wants to convey about the ministry of john the baptist and. I tell you, we'll refer back to Mark's gospel and to Matthew's gospel some this week and maybe next week. But, uh, but the other gospel writers, Mark and Matthew, uh, sort of uh, illuminate John's ministry in a little different way. And they give us a little more detail uh, about what John did and what John said and some things that happened to John. So if you're interested in John the Baptist, you might refer over to the other gospel writers and, and see a little more. Um, but as we sort of work our way to the end of this, this Luke's look at John... Uh, I've sort of titled this, this series of messages, John the Greatest, and we're in part three if you've lost track of that um, today. We looked in the last time together at John's message. What I want you to see in this last section of, of this piece of, the, of Luke's gospel is I want you to see John's character. Uh, his message is a, is a, was an imp- impressive message. It was a bold message. It was a, a sort of an in-your-face, uh, out-of-the-ordinary message. Countercultural countercultural kind of a message and and it, and it had immediate sort of impact to the people to whom he preached but John's message was only effective to the degree that his character reflected what he preached and that's really true of any preacher isn't it you, you, the, the message that you proclaim is only as good as the character that stands behind it if people know you're not a person of character it doesn't matter what you say uh, it it rings hollow, and it, and, it, and it lacks impact. And that's true whether you're a preacher who does what I do who stands in the pulpit or, or who stands by the Jordan River, or whether you're just a, a, a when I say just, I mean a, a common believer who's sharing the gospel with the people you work with or the people in your neighborhood, really the people who know you know your character. And the message that you, that you give them has to be backed up by a character that supports it. Isn't that right? Uh, because people can spot a hypocrite in a, in a mile away. Right? You can spot a hypocrite when they're coming you can, you can hear a message, you can look at a life And you can say, wait a minute, something here does not add up It doesn't add up I hear what you're saying And it sounds like it's my, it might be true But I, but I know you and, and something doesn't match here And so I want you to see in John that his message and his character were perfectly aligned. And that's part of the reason why God was able to use him with the the degree of impact that he had is because these two things were in perfect alignment. And so I want you to, as we work through the end of this, we will be looking at what he's saying and what he's doing, but I want you to be thinking in terms of the character of John that's displayed through this. And I want you, especially if you're a believer here and you know Christ, and maybe you've been walking with him for a long time in your life, I want you to sort of look at John's character and sort of give your own self a quick self-examination and ask the question, does my character reflect these kinds of traits as well? Because not only are these the character traits that, are, that mark John's life, that should mark the life of any anybody who stands up and proclaims the gospel and preaches the word of God, but they also are the character traits I believe should mark every disciple of Christ uh, who, who speaks... For him in any way. And so that's what I, how I want to frame this text this morning. So, if you're looking for an outline or you're looking for sort of a way to uh, uh, hang the thoughts we're going to talk about this morning, it's right in front of you there. There's all the points. You can write them all down right now if you want to, and we'll just walk through them. But I want you to see that this is the kind of a man John was. When we, when we hear Luke present him, he presents him as a man who is humble, a man who although he's bold and although he, he doesn't back down or shy away from the truth, he is a man who has a very acute sense of self-awareness and he knows exactly who he is and he knows precisely who he is not and he understands his place and there's a humility that sort of infuses everything that he says even though what he says is hard for people to hear. He says it out of a character that exudes humility, but he's also one who exalts Christ. He's driven by the gospel, and he's a man of courage. And so that's how we'll sort of look at this this morning. If you look at me, or look, don't look at me, but look with me, uh, verse 15 and 16, we'll see this humility start to, to sort of exude from the page here. Luke writes, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal or whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie you see something interesting is happening john has been out by the jordan river in that region and he's been preaching for a season now and and if you recall the backdrop of all of this it's been over 400 years since god has sent a prophet to israel I mean, God had shut his mouth to Israel. He had stopped sending prophets. He had stopped sending representatives to speak on his behalf. Israel had turned their back on him. And so God said, fine, you're not going to listen to my prophets. You're going to persecute them. You're going to kill them. You're going to ignore them. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to stop sending them. And you, wanna, you think you got it figured out? You think you can, you, can, you can live without me? You think you can captain your own ship? Have at it. Knock yourselves out. See how that works out for you. So for about 400 years, that's what's been going on in Israel. And the nation has been in severe decline ever since, spiritually and in every other sense. And so when John sort of comes on to the scene, it's been hundreds of years, and there is still this messianic expectation from Israel. Even though they're apostate and they've turned their backs on God in, in, in every real practical way, they still know their Old Testament, and they still believe that the Messiah is going to come at some point. And so when, when John comes on the scene, Uh, He's altogether different than anyone else. He looks like a prophet, right? He's dressed like, uh, reminiscent of uh, Elijah in the Old Testament. He, he's eating a, a prophet's diet, if you will. We talked about that a couple weeks. He sounds like a prophet in what he delivers and, and, and the way he's delivering it. He speaks with a certain power and authority that nobody else is, is speaking with. He's unlike anyone anyone had ever seen. And so it's natural that the crowd would begin to talk amongst themselves, right, and begin to think, well, oh, I wonder, it, it, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. So you can imagine after a season that that kind of a conversation begins to bubble up in the crowd begin to wonder, maybe he's the Christ. It's a reasonable question and we can understand it, but John's having no part of that. As soon as he catches wind of it, John publicly deals with that issue in a very clear way he's not in any way confused about who he is or what his job is he's not going to let that question sort of linger very long and so he nips it immediately in the bud and in a very public sort of a way and we see in the way that he does that that he has a very very clear sense of self-awareness he is not the messiah and he says to them right off i am not the messiah is coming but i'm not him i'm not him he's coming he's coming but i'm not him Not only is he coming, he's not here yet, on the scene at least, publicly, but he's mightier than I am. John says, you know, you think that I'm impressive? You think that I'm somebody? Listen, to translate this into southernese, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? You ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till he gets here. You think I'm somebody? I'm nobody. When he gets here, you're going to see somebody that's really impressive. Wait till you see him. I just have the ability to preach his message. That's all I can do. I'm the guy who stands and proclaims his message. When he shows up, he has the power to enforce it and make it come alive. I can only baptize you with water. He has the power to change your heart and to redirect the whole course of your life. His baptism is one that's powerful and it's effective and it changes things. He says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But John says, I'm not him. He's mightier than I am. I don't hold a candle to him. In fact, John says, listen, I'm not even in the same league. I'm not even in the same zip code as the Messiah. You couldn't be more wrong in thinking that's who I am. And he gives them a very, very vivid illustration that they would have understood immediately. He says, let me tell you how wide the gap is, how how broad the gulf is between me and the Messiah. If you want to understand who I am in relationship to him, here's all you need to know. I'm not worthy to even untie the strap of the sandals on his feet. That's where I stand in relationship to him. Now, sandals are still popular today, but they're not the same in uh, the way that it plays out in culture uh, as it was in John's day I mean you may have your, I don't know what kind of sandals are popular today but whatever the, your sandals are that you wear you probably uh, don't walk around on dirty dusty roads all day long in your sandals and, and get dirty feet from that all throughout the day but that was sort of the way it worked in the the, the first century and, uh, and in those days there was an interesting dynamic that took place, like you know, you know these days we go to if you want an education, you, you apply to a college and you get accepted and you pay tuition and you go to a college. Well, it didn't work like that in the first century. If you, if you wanted to learn, if you wanted to study, you found a teacher and you followed that teacher. You didn't pay tuition, but what students would do is they followed their teacher is they would, uh, to show honor and to show respect, they would take care of all of the, the little things that needed to be taken care of in the teacher's life as a way to sort of honor and respect him. They would do all the little things for him and they would take care of stuff and they would do me tasks. They would do just about everything for their teacher. In fact, really popular teachers had to, really didn't have to lift much of a finger to do anything uh, practically in life. There was somebody, a student, who would take care of it for them. But there was one thing that nobody was expected to do and that was to untie your sandals. That was, a, that was an action or that was an activity that, 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 that was seen as so degrading that, that students couldn't even be compelled to do that. One rabbi wrote this. He said, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher. Except, what? The loosing of his sandal thong. Loosing of his sandal. To bend down and to to loosen the the thong on somebody's sandal on their dirty feet was below the lowest thing that even a slave was expected to do. You couldn't get more menial than that. And John says, if you want to know how significant I am in comparison to the Messiah, here's how significant I am. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial thing that you could imagine that's below the lowest expectation of the lowest slave for him. I'm not even worthy of that. I don't even have that kind of status. He is so worthy of honor, and I'm so unworthy of it. The gulf is so huge between the two of us that I don't, I'm not even worthy to do something that menial for him. I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. I'm below a slave. And these are the words that are coming out of the man that Jesus says was the greatest man that ever lived. And the greatest man says, I'm not, I don't even rank as low as the low in comparison to him Christ Jesus is that glorious he's that majestic he is that impressive that i don't even i don't even have a shade in me that's close to him no i'm not the christ i'm not even in the same zip code john says just as an aside if we flip over a little further into the gospels, you're going to find that later as Jesus comes onto the scene in his ministry, he's going to gather up his disciples one day. Do you remember the story? And he wants to sort of teach them a lesson about what it means to be great. And he's going to teach them that being great begins with serving. And so he grabs a basin and he grabs a towel. And what does the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ do? He bends down in front of those men. And he reaches down to do what? To untie their sandals and wash their feet. And so you can understand why Peter would recoil at such a thing and say to him, "Absolutely not! You will not do that for me." And Jesus says, "Oh, I will. Oh, I will." Oh, John. John was an immensely, immensely popular preacher. I mean, there was no preacher in his day that even held a candle to John the Baptist. No one even came close to him. I mean, he had everything going against him to draw a crowd, right? He had a terrible location. He didn't look cool. He didn't sound cool. He didn't have a a popular feel-goody kind of a message to deliver to people. He was out of the way. He looked weird. He delivered a hard message that was hard to receive. And yet people were literally flocking out to see him. And the word was spreading all through the region about him. People, everybody was talking about John. And they were telling their neighbors, you gotta come with me. We're gonna go out to the river and we're gonna listen to John. He was at the top of his popularity. He was absolutely unrivaled in his day. And you know, for most preachers, that would be an opportunity to swell with pride, wouldn't it? I mean, that's seen as the height of success. Draw a big crowd, have a bunch of people admire you, come a long ways to hear what it is that you have to say. There would be a real temptation, right, to, to begin to think, let, let, let's see how, I, how long I can keep this thing going. This is pretty good. I mean, I must be really something. These, these, people, these people love me. There would be this temptation sort of to relish in the spotlight and to find a way to make it self-serving, to see how long we can make it roll. But John is not like that. He's a humble man, and he completely understands his place. He says to the crowd, listen, I'm just a messenger, I'm not the Messiah. That's not me. I'm just the doorman, he's the VIP. In comparison to Christ, I'm absolutely insignificant. Insignificant. If you go a little further into the gospel of John, you you see in verse 25, uh, chapter three, this is what we're told this is in in John's gospel now Luke's gospel chapter 3 John elucidates this a little bit for us he says a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification and they came to John and they said to him this is the disciples of John came to him and said Rabbi he who was with you across the Jordan I'm saying it like I think they said it he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness look he's baptizing and all are going to him uh-oh, we've got a problem. We've got a problem, John. Baptizing was kind of your thing, man. And you remember that other guy that we talked about over the Jordan? He's baptizing people. He's stealing your deal. And, and worse than that, guess what? All the people are, they're going to him. They're going to him. You can hear the sheer panic in this guy's voice, right? He's all worked up. There's competition on the horizon. Somebody else is, is on the scene and somebody else has sort of stolen their deal and, and, and they're, they're, they're drawing away people from their numbers. John, don't you see? We're losing our crowd. Our numbers, are, our numbers are down. We gotta do something or we're gonna be out of business here soon. You can just sense the panic in his voice, Right? He sees the ministry slipping away and he doesn't understand what the, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. But John understands. Here's what he says in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy is my of mine is now complete he must increase but i must decrease that's a man who understands his place that is a man who is humble. John is so detached from any sense of self-importance that he's absolutely unmoved by the message of his disciple, right? The people are being drawn away to another preacher. As long as that preacher is Jesus, John says, I'm joyful about that. He's the the bridegroom. I'm just the best man, and I'm happy that he's on the scene. He's got the bride, not me. I'm just the happy best man, and here's the key thought. He has to increase, and I have remarkable, isn't it? Think about the humility that that takes at the height of his popularity to say I'm nobody. I need to just fade into the background and he's everything. John has a real sense that Jesus owes him absolutely nothing. That it's by God's grace that he has any ministry, that he had any crowd, that anything good had happened because of him or through him or because of his ministry. He was absolutely content, absolutely content to execute his ministry. And he was absolutely content to step aside. Because it was never about him. It was never about him. It was always about Jesus. If there's anything that you and I, as Christians, ought to strive for in our life, it's that attitude. In my life, the thing that matters is I need to decrease and Christ needs to increase. If somehow I can decrease in importance and Christ can increase in importance, the world is a better place and my life is a better thing. He's everything. I'm nobody. He owes me absolutely nothing. Whatever he gives me is more than I deserve. You know, some of the biggest practical life problems that you and I experience, listen to me, some of the biggest practical life problems that you and I experience, we experience because we miss the simple truth. We begin to think we're somebody. We begin to think that we're owed something. We begin to think that we're entitled to something that we, for whatever reason, don't have. And when we don't get it, we get angry. And we believe we have every right to be embittered and vengeful and to pout and to manipulate and to retaliate. All of that flows out of a heart that thinks we're somebody. That thinks somebody owes us something. I think God owes us a better lot than what we have at a particular moment. In those moments, we need to stop and say, you know what? I need to decrease, and Christ needs to increase. Whatever I have is more than I deserve. He owes me nothing. He owes me nothing. Because I'm nobody. Everything I have is a gift of His grace. It's not a wage that I've earned. He has to increase and I have to decrease. I see this manifest an awful lot in, a, in different things on the counseling side of what I do and I won't spend much time on this but just to say in, in a, a, a large percentage of, of cases when I'm walking with somebody through a problem or a challenge in their life quite often at the root of it, at least in part, is an overblown sense of pride and self-importance It's driving a bunch of behaviors that are counterproductive in life. Oh, your, your, your wife is, is awful, and she's mean, and she's not the woman you married, and she treats you so poorly. What, what do you deserve? Do you think you deserve better? You deserve a better wife? You you deserve better treatment? On what basis? On what basis do you deserve that? On what basis does God owe you that? Who are you to declare what you're owed? Maybe instead of looking in the mirror and talking about what you deserve, you might need to think about how you can decrease and Christ can increase in importance. And that might change things. Just might change things. Well, you get the gist, right? It's not just marriage. It's just so many, so many challenges we face come back to that issue. It's a simple issue, but it's hard to practice, and it's hard to admit, isn't it? Go ahead and nod with me, because I feel like I'm the only one if you don't. Let me ask you this question. It's a simple question. In your life, as a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, When you consider your own life as a Christian, do you see yourself primarily as having rights or having responsibilities? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as primarily having rights or responsibilities? When Jesus talks about what it looks like to follow him, he says things like this If you want to come after me, you need to take up your cross, which is another way of saying you need to die to yourself. And you need to follow after me. And he says things like this. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it first. It's another way of saying, you need to die to your rights. You need to die to this idea that you have rights, that somebody owes you something. And you need to come to the understanding that what you have is a responsibility to follow after me, to walk with me, to love me, to obey me and I'll care for you and I'll take care of all your needs and I'll give you everything you need when you and I get that flipped upside down things go crazy in our lives and the fruit of it is destructive maybe you're feeling that today maybe there's some piece of your life today that's coming unraveled and you need to stop and ask the question underneath it, it really is this just an issue of me having, having a prideful spirit refusing to be humble thinking that I'm more important than I really am thinking that God or somebody else owes me something that they really don't? Is it a real case where I just need to decrease and let Christ increase? That was, that was John's attitude. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, you know what John does? He steps aside and he watches the crowd go and he fades off into insignificance in a prison at the end of his ministry until he dies. And he does so joyfully. It's a man of humble character. The second thing we see about his character is he's Christ-exalting. He's Christ-exalting. It's not just that he sees himself as nobody. He sees Christ as everything. And we see that in the way he captures verse 16 and 17. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Fire. John wasn't just humble. He pointed people directly to Jesus. John prepared the way for Christ. He pointed the way for Christ. He exalted Christ, and then he got out of the way. Christ was then important to him. And the way he explains his insignificance, he does it by comparing his baptism to the baptism that Christ is going to bring. And this may not be really clear on the surface, so I want to spend what time we have remaining just sort of dealing with that. And then we'll pick up with the rest of these character traits next week. But he uses this issue of baptism because that was sort of the thing that drew people to him. It was the thing that he was doing that was unique as a way of showing that he's nobody and that Christ is everything. He, in essence, is saying in this this portion of the text, he's saying this, you all come out here to see me baptizing, but when he gets here, his baptism will make mine seem utterly insignificant. I I baptize you with water, he says. "I I can call you to repentance. I can call you to repent. And to turn from your sin and to prepare your hearts for the Messiah and I can dunk you in water that will, that will wash the outside of you as a symbol of what is supposedly taking place inside of your heart but I have no power to have to change you none whatsoever my baptism cannot give you salvation it only prepares a person to receive his message and his baptism his baptism is altogether different than mine, mine is purely symbolic his actually does something so what does his do? well he tells us, he says he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire John says I can immerse you in water what he's going to do is he's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit or better put he's going to put the Holy Spirit in you you see the Jews understood from the Old Testament that God was going to send his spirit to indwell his people when they repent this was a a part of the, the the Old Testament promise of the new covenant we see it in Ezekiel chapter 36 and following is my friend Ezekiel here this morning by the way Oh, this is twice I've got witnesses I've got a little friend In case you don't know what I'm talking about We've got a little One of our little fellas Named Ezekiel Who's been coming For some time And he, whenever he's here He catches me in the, the foyer After church And says you didn't You didn't say anything About Ezekiel this morning So I keep promising I'm going to do it And every time I do it He's not here So you got to You got to tell him I did it, alright? Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says, or better yet God says through Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart. He's speaking to Israel of the new covenant. And a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was the hope of Israel. The, the, the that the new covenant was going to happen, that the Messiah was going to come, and a part of his coming was going to be the giving of his spirit to indwell his people. And so John was reminding this Jewish crowd that's gathered of this Old Testament expectation, and he was pointing them to Christ as the realization of this. He's saying when he comes, he's the one who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. Now we want to be careful because this phrase in our culture, at least in modern evangelical culture in the last 50 to 100 years has been sort of hijacked by a segment of the evangelical community that wants to say that what's being talked about here is some sort of a second blessing of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. John couldn't have had anything in his mind farther from that than that idea. This is not some sort of a a secondary Holy Spirit blessing apart from salvation. What John is saying here, when he says the Messiah is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he's referring to what happens to every believer as they repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we repent and trust in Christ, we are baptized by Christ into his Spirit. His Spirit indwells us and he affects salvation in our life saying he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's saying this. he's going to give you his spirit who's going to be the agent of your salvation. He's going to save you by the power of his spirit. He's going to give you his spirit who's going to apply salvation to you personally. And then we don't have time this morning. I mean, I've got all time in the world, but you probably don't have time this morning Or the endurance to sit and walk through everything that the the Bible tells us about the role of the Holy Spirit. But the role of the Holy Spirit in your salvation is absolutely significant. The Bible tells us at least these things. It tells us that the Holy Spirit is responsible for regenerating us. In Titus 3 5, we're told this He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. As we repent and turn to Christ, somewhere in that mix, the the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, we are baptized into his Spirit. And at least a part of that is his regenerating work inside of our hearts, whereby he transforms us from being dead in sin and makes us alive to Christ. He doesn't just regenerate us, though he adopts us. He claims us as God's children. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And spirit, if you read that in your Bible, is capitalized. It's referring to the Holy Spirit, who adopts us into the family of God and, and takes us from being God's enemies and makes us part of his family. So the Spirit regenerates us. He makes us come alive. He adopts us into God's family. And he furthermore justifies and sanctifies us. That is to mean he declares us righteous. And then he goes about the work of making us actually righteous at the same time. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, such were some of you. He says that to a church. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work, who applies it to your life. So when John says, Jesus is coming, and his baptism is different than mine, at least in part, what he's going to do is he's going to, for some of you, baptize you into the Holy Spirit. That is to say, upon your repentance and faith, he is going to regenerate you. He is going to adopt you into the family of God. He is going to justify you and declare you righteous. And then he's going to go about the work of making you actually righteous. And furthermore, he is going to seal you and preserve you till the very end. John says, I'm just a preacher. I just point you to the Messiah. I can preach. I can exhort. I can baptize. But I can't save you. He can save you. He 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 can pour his spirit out on you and bring salvation to you. He's the Savior. But he also says Jesus will baptize with fire. Now, if you study this on your own, I'll bring to your attention there are some scholars who understand this to be simply another reference to the Holy Spirit. And there is some legitimacy to that, I think. You can uh, cross-reference in in the text, and you can see places in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is represented uh, by the imagery of fire, uh, not the least of which would be at Pentecost in the book of Acts. You remember the Holy Spirit descends and is described as like tongues of fire over the people. So, that that is uh, where where some scholars will draw that conclusion also in exodus uh, some examples there uh, i don't take i don't take it to mean that when john is speaking of jesus baptizing with the holy spirit and with fire uh, and i think the illustration that he gives of it right after that helps us to understand exactly what he's talking about the fire baptism he's talking about here is the baptism of divine eternal judgment it's a baptism of judgment you say well why do you take it that way Well, a couple of things. In the Old Testament, fire is often associated with God's wrath. again, we don't have time to cross-reference it, but look for yourselves. I'll give you one example. Uh, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi says this, For behold, this is right at the end of the Old Testament, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Zephaniah 1.18, other places. Fire is the illustration of the divine judgment of God, his wrath poured out on sin. John, in fact, just used, I mean, yeah, John the Baptist just used that illustration back up in verse 9. Remember, he said, every tree therefore that doesn't bear good fruit is gonna be cut down and thrown where? It's gonna be thrown into the fire. It's a point, of, it's a message of judgment, Right? And of course, Jesus is going to use this same illustration. You may remember in Matthew chapter thirteen, he tells us the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He talks about the church and he says, you know, uh, excuse me, um, uh, the, uh, the, the the world. Uh, and he says they're going to grow up in the world, both wheat and and, and weeds that look like the wheat and. And it's going to be hard to tell the difference between the true and the false believer and what's going to happen is at the end of time Christ is going to come and uh, in verse 40 and four, through 42 of chapter 13, "Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it'll be at the end of the age the Son of man will send his angels and they'll gather out of the kingdom uh, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing. baptism with fire is a baptism an immersion in the divine judgment of God we know John's talking about this I'm convinced because of the illustration he gives it's a farming illustration I know you're all farmers and that's what you've been doing all week so it's very obvious from the first what's going on here because probably just this last week you were out on the threshing floor right and, and separating the wheat grain from the chaff no, I know better. It, simple process. You grow, you grow wheat, and when it's time to harvest it, they harvest it, and, and you would go to a threshing floor, which would usually be a place on a, a hilltop or somewhere high where the wind blows pretty pretty swiftly and what the farmer would do is he would gather all of the harvested wheat there in a pile and he would take his winnowing fork, this big huge pitchfork looking thing and he would pick up a big a big scoop of that stuff and he would throw it up in the air into the wind and what would happen is the, the chaff, the, the the outside hole that was that was useless, the useless part of the wheat would, would, would catch in the wind and would blow away and the grain that was good and useful was heavier and it would fall back to the earth so that was a really simple and practical way of separating the good grain from the the, the garbage, the trash and so that's what he would do at a harvest they would have all known what this meant you would see a farmer picking up with his winnowing fork and throwing the stuff in the air and the chaff blowing away and the grain falling down and the grain being taken to, to use you know, for useful purposes and all that chaff that blows away is gathered up and they take it because it's just garbage it's trash and it's thrown and it's burned away stark illustration of the seriousness of sin and its penalty. It's a a stunning thing that John says to that crowd. He says, listen, my baptism, I just dunk people in water. That's all I do. I dunk people in water as a symbol of their response to the preaching of repentance. But when the Messiah comes, here's what's going to happen. You're all going to get baptized. He's going to baptize every one of you. He's going to either baptize you with his spirit or he's going to baptize you with fire. You're going to experience the Messiah's baptism one way or the other. It's going to either be through faith and repentance you experience the, the joy and the blessing of salvation that comes by the power of his spirit. who I mean, he sends to indwell you and to bring salvation in all of its facets into your life or by rejecting him and turning from him, you're going to stand one day to face a baptism into his fiery judgment where you'll spend eternity paying the price for your own sin. He'll either be your savior or he's going to be your judge and executioner. John says, I'm nobody, I can't do either one. I can't save you, and I'm not your judge and I can't execute. But the Messiah, Jesus Christ, oh, he's both. And the only question is, which one will he be for you? Will he be the one who baptizes you with his spirit because you believe the gospel? Because you've repented of your sin and embraced him as your Lord and savior? Or will he baptize you with the fire of his eternal judgment? you rejected him and lived for yourself it was the only question that mattered to John's crowd in his day and truthfully it's the only question that matters to this crowd some in John's day in that crowd who heard him would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and some would be baptized with fire some in this crowd today will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and some will be baptized by fire the only question is which one you. Have you repented? Have you believed that the Lord Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the Messiah, God in flesh who came to live a perfect life, to die on a Roman cross where he shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sin, where he endured the fiery wrath of the Father that was due to you so that you could be baptized by his spirit instead? you stubbornly living for yourself? Rejecting Him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, <clears throat> you need to understand that the reason you're saved is because Christ died for you. Because He took the fiery baptism so you didn't have to. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is magnificent. He's glorious, isn't He? what can you say to something like that other than glory be to God in Christ? Where would we be without him? We'd be facing the baptism of fire. Oh, John understands who he is. (laughs) I'm nobody. I'm just a preacher. I have no power to do anything of eternal importance in your life other than to point you to Christ. But he can save you. That's the real message of every true preacher. And it's the real message of every true evangelist. I'm nobody, but Christ is everything. You don't need to remember my name, but by God, you need to know him because your eternal destiny is riding on that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we gather and we listen to John and it's a hard message. It is not, it wasn't in fashion in his day and it's not in fashion in our day. We don't wanna hear about judgment and fire and gnashing of teeth weeping and eternal pain and torment we don't want to hear about hell we don't, hear, we don't want to hear that there's a price for our sins but you've told us that's the truth and John's confronted us with that today And so what I pray that in this room, Lord, is that we would all just pause and consider where we stand in light of eternity. We'd look in the mirror and take a long, hard look and ask the question, which baptism am I going to experience? Baptism with the Holy Spirit where Christ applies salvation to my soul? Or a baptism with eternal judgment an eternity apart from Christ? during God's wrath on my sin that I've earned I pray this morning if any have rejected you up to this point Christ that right now in this very moment they'd be drawn to you they wouldn't be able to leave or sleep or rest until they run to you they're saved Lord for my friends who've gathered and who've known you who've experienced that baptism by the Spirit for my friends who've experienced these things already Lord, help us to examine our own character in these moments as we think about John and his humility and his Christ-exalting drive in his heart. Help us to look at the area of pride in our life. Have we begun to think we're somebody, that somebody owes us something? Lord, if there's somebody here who's just riddled with anger this morning, I pray that you'd help them to see themselves as you see them. You'd help them to lay down their rights whatever it is they think they deserve. And say, honestly, I need to decrease. Christ needs to increase. Or if there's someone struggling with, with some other area, Lord, where pride is the root, just show them this morning what it is. Draw them to yourself. They might find freedom and hope in dying to themselves and living for you. Spirit of God, do your work in our lives. We need you, and we pray it for Christ's sake.